I jumped up there. <laughs> My name's Don, and I'm alcoholic. And I am 73 years old, and I was a young man when I came into the program. So that only goes to show you, if you stay with it, this could happen to you, too. <laughs> Well, I still got all my hair, and it's uh, blonde mixed with gray, and uh, 34 waist. Uh, that's not bad for 73. I go to a fitness center three times a week. I go to the Promises Club every day at noon. I, uh, I'm going to Northern Kentucky University. I'm working on a doctorate in education. When I came in, I was lucky I could read and write. And all those things I accomplished through my time in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I did just like it says in the big book. We came here for a new design for living. And I was surrounded by a group of wonderful people. I was just very lucky to run into all the right people at the right time. And they had such an effect on me that I loved the program and I stayed with it. And I'm so glad I did. I remember an old timer by the name of Francis McCarthy who pointed out in the big book to me all the time a very important line is, it's the pains of drinking that leads us into AA, then it's the pains of sobriety that leads us to serenity. And so he says, you come in here, you think you have a drinking problem, and then you find out it's a living problem. How do you find out it's a living problem? Because now suddenly you're sober and you are become aware <laughs> that you really got problems. So at that point, that's where you must fasten your seatbelt and ride those living problems and then when you get to the other side, you will realize they were never really that great at all. And that's where serenity starts, I suppose. So today, 73, I don't worry about paying for a house anymore because it's now paid for. Didn't always know when I was going to make the payments. I don't even use a Visa card anymore because there's not many things I buy or want to go or do anymore like that. So that doesn't bother me. I can now get a new car every couple years when uh, the other one starts to need some repairs or something. And before I had the broken off muffler, rusted, LS, LTD uh, with fins on it and all kinds of, uh, I think Dune probably remembers the big yellow car I had that used to come up Oak Street with. So all those things all straighten themselves out. And so now I'm on that other end. Now the only thing I worry about is... Uh, Seeing that I breathe every day when I get up, you know. As <laughs> long as I can breathe, I can make it to my meetings, have a good bowel movement, I'm set. <laughs> and when I think of all the things I worried about, and I think so much about the, the late George Burns who died at the age of 100, and he said, thank God I'm not young anymore. I don't think I could handle it anymore. <laughs> So that's why you young people have all the problems you have of raising children, paying bills, doing all the things that you do, and mothers dropping kids off at daycare centers, and fathers picking them up, and fighting with the bosses, and thinking you're going to lose your job, and all these things happen. And that's why you are young, to handle those things. When you get to my side, then the government says, here's your Medicare, go take care of your arthritis. The government says here is a pension to supplement the Social Security to supplement your company pension. And that's fine. Then I go to the movie house and they say, oh, you get senior citizen discounts. You get money off. I get money off at Arby's, <laughs> McDonald's. I get 25 cent coffee there. I get money off at Burger King. 
I get off at Bill Knapp's, I get a free birthday cake even, and uh, it just gets better all the time. <laughs> so I don't envy you because you're young. I watched this young Steve when he came up to read the preamble or something. Notice, I've not watched that. One leap, he was up here. Well, it won't always be that way, Steve. <laughs> when I came in here, there was a little girl crying her eyes out when she came in here. Her name is Clara. Is Clara here? Where's Clara? There she is. It's her very first AA meeting, and she was crying, and I said, Honey, there's a lot of us that have done that before you, so don't worry. But I only wish I could have started at Clara's age, because I was a middle-aged man when I came into the program. Well, let me tell you just a little bit of myself in a general way. Uh, to tell you specifically, when at my age, it would take most of the evening up, and we don't want to have too much of that. But in general, I, uh, I grew up uh, in North College Hill, you know, the other side of town. My father had a pharmacy there, and my mother uh, was an antique dealer, and she uh, bought and sold and antiques and all this kind of stuff. She was quite an expert on that type of thing. And they both had very busy careers doing what they did. And so I was mainly raised by my grandmother, and my grandmother was the most prominent person in my whole life, I believe. And uh, I, I was aware of the fact that my mother and father had careers of their own and did what they want. And uh, apparently I was not a not part of Planned Parenthood because my mother was 44 years old when I was born. And I have a sister that's 18 years older than me and a brother that's 17 years older than me. So you don't suddenly wait so many years, 17 years later, and then have a child at the age of 44. So that uh, obviously was uh, rather a miracle. And I'm glad I'm here. So uh, mainly then my grandmother started to raise me. Now, as I, uh, I came up, I think I always felt like I was, and you've heard this so many times, I hate to repeat things, but we say this, we feel so, we're so different or unique or, or we feel like we don't belong. I think that's the great expression we hear. I felt that way too. And it was later when I went to a psychologist who said to me, well, you were aware of the fact that you were raised by your grandmother and when you went to school, everybody else was their mother and father. And your mother and your father were quite busy and they visited you and so forth. And so when you went to school, since you didn't have an active parenting, you probably did feel like you didn't belong. And maybe that stayed with you most all your life. Well, whatever it was, it, it satisfied me. It seemed to calm me down later in my life. And maybe there's some reason sometimes with our in our parenting that we often are uh, feel like we're uh, not able to really mix in. I don't know. I don't want to get into psychology, but that was what I personally learned from it. So with that instilled feeling within me and sort of a feeling always of a void, uh, it would only be natural that I look for things that would make me feel comfortable. Uh, sweet candies. Uh, my first cigarette when I was 15. These things all had a, sort of an euphoria to them. And then when I had uh, sipped some beer, and that had a, a euphoria to it. And I think it was then that I decided that my well, life isn't so bad after all. You know, if you can eat a greater Sunday and you can uh, smoke cigarettes and you can uh, drink beer, why well, then life is bearable. Today, uh, that would qualify me to be an OA, uh, Smokers Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, that shows you the thinking of where I was. But anyhow... Uh, so I've looked for taking my comfort. I think that's the old-fashioned expression. Whatever would make me comfortable, I would naturally drift to. So I grew up rather quickly, 
And uh, I was six foot one, and I, I weighed something like 110 pounds. So I was that frightfully thin youngster that you often will see. They're awkward. You ever notice how the, you, have, you have any teenage children that move this way or something? And the poor things are so awkward when they're terribly thin. Well, I was. And I had a million pimples on my face. And I was one of these real faded out blondes, you know, and not with any eyebrows and so forth. And when you go to school, that's that's awful. And I felt terrible. And then I found the glamorous people at, at school, at high school. And they were uh, the fellas and the girls that uh, went out and uh, had beer at these football games. And they'd go out and get beer right out of the trunk of the car and sit there and drink it and enjoy the whole game. And then I had something with them and I enjoyed it, too. I felt relaxed. The pimples fell off my face. <laughs> my eyebrows began to darken. I took an expression on my face. I wasn't so thin and awkward and I didn't move like this. I was feeling comfortable. Now, if something comes into your life and makes you feel that good, you're going to embrace it. You're going to like it and you're going to go all the way which I would proceed to do. I was always one who loved fantasy uh, and everything. I was uh, a youngster that would uh, daydream an awful lot. And uh, I loved the movies. And believe it or not, that we were talking over at this table before. Somebody said, well, uh, they remembered before there was television. Well, of course, I remember very clearly before television. I remember when the first talking pictures came in. <laughs> But anyhow, we went to the movies when we were youngsters on Saturday afternoon. And there were the Buster Crab and the, the, all this space stuff, which, by the way, all came true. That's what's interesting. We thought it was all fantasy. Then it all came true. And we'd watch them take it off for the moon and that. And then I'd look at the feature picture. And here I'm a youngster looking at all these adults on the screen. We didn't have any R-rated and all that stuff then. So kids sat through everything. And I had to kind of figure out what that was. There's beautiful Joan Crawford, and there's Cary Grant, and they're together, and they're in a close-up scene. And they're obviously making these suggestive or some kind of comments which a youngster wouldn't understand what they meant. I didn't get the double entendre of what they were talking about, but did notice that he lit a cigarette, and she lit a cigarette, and they blew smoke rings. And then he had a martini, and she had a martini, and they locked arms and they looked in each other's eyes and they drank it. And then I knew they were in love because they drank together and they smoked together. <laughs> and that definition of love would stay with me most of my life. If she did not drink or smoke, she was not part of my company. She was square. She was a Baptist. <laughs> Take that, cut that part out of the tape. I didn't know we were, I forgot we were at a Baptist church. I just used that as a throwaway line and never thought I'd be saying it someday when I was really at a Baptist church. But anyhow... Uh, that that was my definition of love. So you see, I, I got these these things. Now that same that same movie scene, if you showed it today, the couples locking arms, drinking the martini, and blowing cigarette smoke in the air, 
that same scene could be played again and it would be sponsored by the American Cancer Society and, you know, the National Council on Alcoholism would be sponsoring that same thing. Well, anyhow, that, is, that starts you off with giving you an idea of the things that I, I fell in love with, the reason why I wanted to take comfort. I was always interested in escapism. I still am interested in escapism. Uh, I... Um, I was addicted to not only alcohol and cigarettes, but I was addicted to excitement. Excitement, very much. I liked everything to be exciting. If it wasn't exciting, I could certainly start the excitement, if you know what I mean, because it was very essential. And that, that's the way I lived my life. And I uh, uh, graduated from high school. I, I went to college and I was to become a teacher. And I, I did. And But I did other things while I was going through college. I got a job at WLW Radio, and I worked on the radio late at night. I think Harry knows about this. And I used to recite poetry. And uh, organ music would come on. Moon River. And then I would come in and say, How do I love thee? Oh, let me count the ways. I love thee more than the sun, the moon. And I would emote on with this love poetry and the music would come up and I'd look at the organ and he'd bring it down. That was wonderful. <laughs> and you know, there's something wonderful about working in radio because you can be anything you want. You don't like yourself? Fine, be somebody else. I saw an interview with Barbara Walters one time said to Paul Newman, the, the great actor, well, what do you really like? He said, Barbara, I don't know. That's why I'm an actor. Uh, you know, he said, they hand me a script and say, you're Billy the Kid, I'm Billy the Kid. They turn around and say, I'm a glamorous uh, uh, lover in a movie. I am that. But when you tell me who am I really, I don't know. That's why I am an actor, because I don't know who I am. And I find that very true of most of us in AA, are quite the actors. Well, I did this radio program, and this radio program started catching on, and lots of people start listening to it. And the next thing you know is we're getting telephone calls. And in those days, WLW was 500,000 watts. It went all the way to Georgia. went everywhere. It used to jam out other kind of stations, you know, before the uh, FCC came in and regulated all these stations. So it was so powerful. And we'd get calls from all over. And calls would come in from different places. And I remember this, uh, this engineer who had this really Appalachian accent and so forth. And, uh, I said, this is really something in it, this wonderful market we're touching into. And he said, well, if you call all the drunks in the country, that's who's calling in. I said, well, he said, well who else likes that kind of sad stuff at night? You know, I should have taken it. He said, now, just tell me any normal person that at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning stops his car, gets out into a telephone booth and calls up and says, Will you play I'll Never Smile Again? <laughs> he says, if that's your market, I don't know whether, that, whether the sponsor wants you to be hitting this kind of a market, you know. But it's true. There were there were drunken people who were listening to it. And still to this very day, you know, drunks love country western music. Even we sober drunks love country western music. Because got that sort of where am I going to sleep tonight when I get home? <laughs> Which is very much our story. Well, anyhow, I did that event, that stint, and then I left from there. And I thought I was so good at this. Then uh, so grandiose was I that I decided I would go to New York. And I tried on my own. 
Well, I was very naive, really very naive. I had enough for a bus ticket to the Port Authority station in New York City. I got there. I had $17, and then I went to a YMCA where I got a room, and I worked at the coffee shop of the YMCA. That was my visit to Manhattan. That was really glamorous on 23rd Street. And while I was there, I met uh, people that I worked with there, and then I got promoted. I went to work for Walgreens. And I went from Walgreens to there. And then the next thing you know is uh, a friend of mine said, you know, uh, they hire people on these cruise ships that you get to travel all over. And uh, you have to be young and you have to look good in a tuxedo and that's all you need. And so and you have to know how to dance. So I went down and applied and believe it or not, I got it. I got a job on a cruise ship. And the, this was in the 1950s then. And everybody was, uh, you know, after the war, the Americans had lots of money, the Europeans had nothing, so everybody got on a cruise ship and went to Europe, where you could go all over Europe for $200 or something like that in those days. And so these cruise ships were going like crazy. The Norwegian America Line, Swedish American Line, Canard Line, everybody couldn't help in taking all these people to and from Europe and the Holy Lands and all kinds of places. So I got a job on this cruise ship. And uh, the cruise director extracts to us, now all you do, you put the tuxedo on and everything else. you got to look always just right in the daytime. This is what you wear and so forth. So uh, we learned all that stuff. And in the evening, you come out and you dance with the ladies now. You know, there's a lot of widows here and people who do not have uh, a partner. And uh, that's what we have you extra fellas along for. So you be sure you do that. And that's all you do. Just dance with them. And, of course, we give you a bar account and you should buy them a drink. It looks very bad for... Uh, for them to treat you, that it would be like you're a b-boy of some kind, so you don't. On the other hand, uh, they might want to buy you a drink, that's good for our bar, then you buy them a drink. Make a round here and there, just use your judgment, which we're sure you know. <laughs> Makes you jealous, doesn't it? You probably say, but nobody ever gave me a free bar account in the middle of a cruise liner in the middle of the ocean. But that's what I was given. So I learned how to become an alcoholic. And I followed the guidelines of the National Council of Alcoholism, which says there are some people in this world, a lot of you know them, there are people who take a drink now and then, and they giggle, and they think it's wonderful, and they put it away, and they don't think about it for another six months or their birthday or something, and that's it. For instance, I have a sister who makes on Christmas Eve a Manhattan. She makes it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, puts saran wrap on the top of it, puts it in the icebox, the saran wrap, so it doesn't spoil the butter. And uh, then she gets it out at midnight and takes a sip of it and thinks that's glorious. And happy, oh, happy new year. Happy new year to you, darling. It's wonderful. And, but she never even finishes that one Manhattan. Now, there are those kind of people, they say they're like that all their lives. That's very hard for us to identify with. <laughs> then the National Council on Alcoholism says there is another group of people who are called social drinkers. Social heavy drinkers and social light drinkers. And they're people that arrive at a party and people say, would you like a drink? Yes, I'll have a drink. That's right. The scotch and water is okay. Thank you. And they drink it and they hold it all evening and go around and talk to everybody. Their motive for being at the party is to meet and talk with people. This which is in their hand is only a prop. 
Well, how are you? Hello, George. Well, I haven't seen you. Well, good. And this, and they often leave it sit there and go on talking and forget. Oh, I, I don't know what I did with my drink, but that's all right. It's somewhere over there. Who cared? What were you talking about? They are there. The motive is to be with people. Then there's the social drinker who's heavy. And he's one who carries on this talking with everybody, but drinks and talks and drinks and gets a little bit high and giggles a little bit. But then says, uh, uh, who's, who's riding over to the east side? I don't, I don't think I should take my car. I think I've had a, a couple of these drinks too much. He has his senses left. Even though he's a heavy drinker, he says, I, 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 I choose not to. I don't think I should do that. And that's the way he is. There are some people, these heavy social drinkers, you know, that among construction workers who in the morning go somewhere and go into a bar and have a shot in a beer. And after that, they pick up their lunch basket and go on. They're not alcoholics. They just had a shot in a beer to pep them up or something. But they went on and reported to work. They did their work. That lunchtime, they come out and have a couple beers and a ham sandwich and talk and laugh with people. You say he's an alcoholic. He shot this morning, two beers here at lunch. No. He goes back to work. See, he goes back to work. So he's not an alcoholic. He still doesn't qualify. And then, to top it all up, comes the evening, and it's 5.30. He gets off. He gets with a couple of his fellow workers. And they stop, and they have five or six beers. And they play pool, and they laugh, and they talk, and everything else. Aha, now he must be the alcoholic. The shot in the morning, the beer at lunch, and now he's playing pool and drinking beer. This must be an alcoholic. What does he do? Suddenly looks at the clock and says, oh, my Lord, it's 6.30. I've got to get home. The old lady's got the potatoes on. We're going to have dinner because we're going to Kmart tonight. Thank you. I'll see you. And he leaves. You know he's not an alcoholic. An alcoholic doesn't say, i got to get home. The potatoes are on because we're going to Kmart tonight. So you see, it all depends on the motive of why we drink. And that's why earth people, and there are some here, I understand, the relatives of, the, of Amy, uh, Maybe you can. Uh, oh, I should explain that your poor relative. A earth people means people who are pretty solid on earth. You know what I mean? We consider ourselves sort of out in space most of the time. That's what we mean by earth people never know what I mean when I say earth people. But it means quite the normal drinkers or people who don't even drink at all. But uh, your motives were always different, see? And perhaps Amy's motives were got mixed up somewhere along the line, or she wouldn't have, or she wouldn't be the chairman or getting a three-year coin tonight unless she had gotten something mixed up, you see. <laughs> but anyhow, I uh, uh, th this is what I did. So I, that national councilman I'm talking about it. Well, here's what I did. I started off drinking just to, because it was fun with these people, and then I became social with them. And I uh, light social, and I don't want to have too much of it. it and, and then I became a heavier social. And then, somewhere along the line, the motive changed. I wasn't coming into the ballroom to socialize and talk and have the prop. But on the other hand, I came in for what was in my hand, and they were sort of in the way. Like, don't talk too much because uh, you annoy me. Uh, you know, no, I don't. I don't want to dance now. Is that all you think about? Is dancing? Why don't you go play bingo? <laughs> See, I switched. The whole thing there, I was there now was for the alcohol. And that wasn't what I was hired for. Remember, I was hired for these people. That's my motive for the job, pleasing them. And this prop was something to add to sweeten it. Instead, it turned out 
this sweetener was what I wanted and they were in the way. And to protect my drinking and see that it was there, I built, which we all talk about, that wonderful wall. That wall between me and other people. I cannot tell you how many times in my life I've had people say to me, you know, uh, sometimes you're you're so wonderful, I feel I can be so close and warm to you. And, and other times, I don't know, there's something about you that there's always that distance. There's always that space between us and you. That inability to be vulnerable. Just couldn't do it. Well, anyhow, I had this job on the cruise ship and I did very well. And next thing you know is I'm getting promoted because, you know, like how we do, we do everything well, especially how to drink well and how to socialize well and how to manage the bar bill. I knew all the bar. I really knew all that facet of it now. What I didn't know was all these paying passengers who came on for my services. I knew all the bartenders. I knew all the drinks and every place, all these countries we went to. We were supposed to go out and load the people on the bus. And they got on my sightseeing bus and went up to the Sphinx, the pyramids. And I sat in a sidewalk cafe waiting for the bus to come back, trying unusual Egyptian drinks. Ooh, that one's strong, isn't it? It's good, though, isn't it? Strong. <laughs> What's this called? Uzu. Oh, that's Greek. Oh, I'd like something Greek now. Here I'm becoming, I thought, sophisticated. I'm becoming connoisseur. I'm beginning to say, oh boy, if they could see me in North College Hill now. Well, it was the beginning of my illness and I did not know this. I did not know this. My mother was living then and my mother came on a cruise that I was on. And I'll never forget what she said. She said to me one time, she said, Donald, you couldn't be that thirsty. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, you've had three or four of those things there in just the time that we've been sitting here. You couldn't be that thirsty. Do you think you're a diabetic? <laughs> That's why mothers are so sweet, you know. I mean, they, they always think it's something else. They'd rather think you're a diabetic than an alcoholic, I guess. But anyhow, but th that was a clue there. I had other people say to me that work with me, you know, I remember one woman was very smart, and very wise. She was a hostess and she'd say, you know, you say one thing to you and you say, that's not important. I don't care. And on you go. I say the same thing to you the next day and suddenly it's a big deal. Oh, what, the, what do you say that for? You're going to you look for things to get angry about. You are looking to be angry. You're a very angry person masking behind all this smile and giggles. Oh, I didn't like that woman. <laughs> I wanted her fired from that company. How dare she time the cruise director? Me and Generalissimo Franco run this company, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, it all had its upshot and we all get what's coming to us in the end. And that is that one night uh, I was in there in the ballroom and talking and uh, elaborating and so forth. And a man crossed across the stage here in sort of baggy pants and they had a foreign accent and he was kind of funny. And for a stand-up comedian, it made good, he made good fodder for me to talk about this man. Now, everybody who was drunk in the room were laughing with me. The sober people thought, my, he's crude, isn't he? And I was crude. Anyhow, this little old man sort of ignored and kind of gave me a half smile like that. And I thought, well, he doesn't even understand English. He was Norwegian. When I got to New York, one of the bosses for the cruise line came in and asked to see me. And he said, I want to tell you that we are 
leave it, we want you to leave the company. We want you to leave the company today. We had a most unusual com complaint. A man by the name of John Olafsson is the owner of this company, the Norwegian America Line, and he said that he walked across the stage and you made fun of him, thinking he couldn't speak or understand English. He does. He owns this company, and he is the nephew of King Gustav of Sweden. So, Mr. Deming, if you think you have class from your Ohio, wherever you come from, I've got news for you. You don't know what it is, but go out and find out what class is within one hour. Within one hour, I was off that boat. Well, I certainly got a resentment toward Norwegians. <laughs> I'll get even with the Norwegians. I was very angry, and I went to a one-room apartment in New York City, and I really drank then. I mean, when you've got a good resentment, you've lost your job, there's no hope. Boy, you do need comfort then. And my best friend was drinking. And it was there that I really crossed. I had crossed the line into alcoholism, but now I crossed the line from chronic into chronic alcoholism. By that I mean when I started to drink in the morning, I drank all day. I drank all the time. Well, <clears throat> back to when I was doing the radio program, I worked with a wonderful lady named Betty Blake. Betty Blake is now dead, so I can mention her name. She was a great Al-Anon member. Anyhow, she was out uh, here in Ohio, and she had a project she was doing. She and a group of other AA members were working on something, a project to save the Delta Queen. Perhaps some of you remember it. And she worked very hard on that. She knew my sister, and my sister told me, I think he's lost that job he had in New York. I don't know. But you know, Betty, he drinks an awful lot. I don't think you want him to come and work for you. She's an Al-Anon member, so she's saying, well, I don't know. I think maybe we could use him. So she wrote for me and uh, asked, and she sent me an airplane ticket to come to Cincinnati. And so I came back to Cincinnati and worked on the Delta Queen project, which was very interesting. And uh, I did not know at the time when I started to work there, there were only nine employees in the office. Today it's a huge corporation. It's got the Delta Queen, the Mississippi Queen, the American Queen. They have now, uh, they have over 2,000 employees. Their main headquarters are in New Orleans, and it's a big, big deal. With a tremendous amount of international traffic. Most of the people that are on the Delta Queen, Mississippi Queen are from Europe. They fly nonstop the, over the poles and all this stuff, and Japanese people. Uh, but anyhow, uh, in those days, it was a small company. We used to go down to Kentucky Lake and back, you know. And uh, there was nine of us that worked in the office, and there were uh, 60 that worked on the whole boat and wharf and everything else. So it was a very small company. And the nine people that worked in the office, I worked with these people, and I came from New York back here, and I thought they were all square. After all, they're Ohioans, and I'm a New Yorker now. Of course, I forgot I was born in North College Hill, but anyhow... <laughs> That's been forgotten some time ago. But these people were so different and unique in the fact that they would have these conversations with each other. They were all AA members, by the way. And they would have these conversations with, well, we work on that. Not yet. Don't project. Just do that part now before we start this. I want, what the hell are these people doing, see? I want to know, and sometimes you'd hear, oh, but for the grace of God, that didn't happen. 
What's God? Yeah, we're talking business here. Booking a vessel, and they're talking about for the grace of God, we fill the cabins, you know. But the grace of God filled the cabins. Well, anyhow, whatever it was. And all these kind of things, and they didn't say anything to me about it. It was none of my business. And they all were aware that I probably had a problem. But the thing that I thought was most annoying about it was when you finished work at five, none of them went out to have drinks with you. They all went somewhere, and yet they all knew each other so well. And you'd hear them say sometime one say the other, what do you think about what Alice said last night in that lead? I didn't know that about her, did you? And they said, no, I didn't know it either. Well, what the hell does that mean? Who's Alice? What did Alice say? I mean, I want to hear the rest of the story. No, you wouldn't know. You, you couldn't hear less anyhow. Well, I thought they were being rude to me and they were being indifferent to me. And I guess they were being. They're just waiting for the time. Well, anyhow, we did have a big event on the public landing. And on the public landing, uh, Betty Blake had a script that she was to read. The mayor was down there. And I remember uh, Western Hills High School band was down there playing all out of tune and everything. But anyhow, they were playing the Star Spangled Banner. But the mayor was there and everything was going on. And what happened was that she said, I left my script up at the office. Would you go up and get it for me and uh, bring it down here? And I did. And I went up in that big LTD with a rust and that had, you know, alcoholic cars always have one door that doesn't open. And, you know, you can go to any church lot anywhere in the country. You go on a trip, pull up by a church lot and pull up around eight o'clock in the evening. If you see some people standing out in front of the door with a styrofoam cup and a cigarette here and cars with some bent up fenders and broken off uh, pipes, you know that is not a Bible reading class. (laughs) That's an AA meeting. Well, anyhow, uh, these people apparently went to their very, they went to their own functions, and that's what they were very close knit people, and I was not part of their society. I brought down this script. The public landing is on a level like this, and this door that did not open was the driver's seat door, so I was used to sliding out this way. On the angle, those big doors, remember those doors on those big LTDs were so heavy that I reached over to do this and it and pulled me out with it and the script went up into the air. Well, obviously it was all out of sorts. It wasn't in the right order. And Betty Blake thanked me later for that because she said all her life, the fear that she had to walk through was being able to deliver a talk without notes. She could never, and she always depended on her notes and sheets in order to speak. And for the first time in her life, she thought, well, God, here it is. You did it for me. There's the drunk with my script. And she went on and she took off. Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you for coming here this glorious day. She went on and she was marvelous. She got the biggest hand she ever got. And she thought that was great. And everybody thought she was great. She got a wonderful review in the paper the next day. The beautiful things that Betty Blake said about this city and this steamboat and its support. All ad lib. But after that, she came back to the office and she called me into her office. She was president of the company and said very, very kindly to me, very kindly. And she called her husband in, who, uh, uh, Jack Simcox. I think, Harry, you knew Jack Simcox. He come up to Oak Street for a long time. He had many years. He is dead now, too. And uh, Betty Blake is dead. But anyhow, they called me in the office and she said, Don, I want to tell you something. Uh, you're not well. 
Well, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 you know, but the door was so I, not. Forget about the door. Forget about the script. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you lost the script because the first time in my life I could deliver a speech without a, without a script. I thank you for that. But no, I want to tell you that you're that you're ill, and uh, I want to help you. And Jack wants to help you. Uh, Jack, you tell him something. Jack says, "Well, I, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovered alcoholic." And uh, huh? What's that got to do with me? You know? And Betty says, "And I'm a member of Al-Anon. So, so what, what's this got to do with me? You know? Let's get to the point. Get to the point. Am I fired or what happened? You know? They weren't firing me at all. But she told me that I need to go to a hospital. Shocking me. Hospital? I mean, just because uh, I what? Dropped a script and went up in the air. I'm going to a hospital. I didn't understand the seriousness of my condition. But she said, I want you to do this, and the company's paying for it, insurance. And if you don't agree with me on this, then you must you must leave this company the same as you left the other company. In case you don't know, the reason why you left the Norwegian line is because you drank too much. Everything else you did was fine. You just drank too much. Everything you've done here is fine. But you drink too much, and it's clouding your mind. It's taken over your world. And we want to help you. We want to help you because we love you, we care for you, and we see a great future for you in this company. Now, something else. I called your sister, who you're staying with while you're here in Cincinnati. My sister? What'd you call her? Tell her I dropped a script? No. To tell her that I thought you had a very severe problem. And she said, Don, your sister says he does. And I'm so grateful that you're going to get him to do something about it. And so I agreed. They fixed me an old-fashioned. And uh, Jack went into a bar and got, can you imagine a carry-out old-fashioned? Uh, an old-fashioned and a styrofoam cup. And I sat in the back seat and went on saying, I still don't understand because I dropped a script. I'm on my way to a hospital. And this is not for the birds. Anyhow. And I went to this hospital. It was Emerson North Hospital. Now, we didn't have care units in those days. They threw you into just regular mental hospitals. Some people got through, thrown into Longview, you know. At least I didn't go there. It was a private hospital, which was Emerson North. And so I went there. And that's where my life changed. Now, when I went there and they locked the doors and everything else, and when I went to this hospital, I want you to know I arrived with a three-piece suit on, I had the tie with the, remember the pins we used to wear underneath? The men used to wear pins like this. We moved like this. And we had French cuffs. And I was dressed up with the bell bottoms. And I was all dressed up. And I went into this mental hospital. In which they immediately said, you put on this gown and these slippers. And we take everything away from you. Your belt. and uh, All because I dropped a script on the public landing. But anyhow, I was in this hospital. And I never had such a frightful experience in my life. What a sobering experience that is to look around and see people who were doing strange things and talking funny things to me. And, and Adam, that's my brother, George. You're my brother, George. Oh, my. All because I dropped a script on the public landing. But anyhow, it was a frightening experience. I mean, to throw alcoholics into really severe mental places is the worst thing in the world you can do. Thank God they have care units today. They didn't then. They threw us into those places. And I had a doctor, the psychiatrist out there, and he spoke to me the next morning. And he spoke to me, and he was an Egyptian. You know, he was an interning here. And he had an Egyptian accent. 
his name was Dr. Muhammad Fuad or something, and he went on talking in his accent. He said to me, ah, Mr. Deming, uh, I see on this report here, you, uh, what, what is it that you drink? What is it that you drink so much of? I said, well, I, I drank, yes, but I, uh, I want to tell you about what happened. This script that went, I, I don't care about no script, don't tell me that. I'm only interested in what, what you drank here. Uh, did you drink beer? I said, no, I didn't. I, I found beer was very bloating. I didn't care much for it. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, no beer. Uh, but did you, did you drink uh, wines? Yes, if they're good wines. You know, Cabernets are good, uh, good French wine. Yeah, I understand what you mean. The wines, huh? Uh, not too much whiskey, but the mainly wine, huh? Yeah, and not the beer. Hmm. That's what the, you Americans call a, a wino, huh? Wino. <laughs> they say we must be deflated. We must be thrown down to the bottom for a grandiose person such as myself to realize that this man said that I was a wino. Well, to cut the story short, I was there, and the most wonderful thing happened to me that changed my whole life. And there was a man that came into this building. And he came in, and he had the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous under his arm, which I didn't know what it was. It looked like a holy Bible to me. And he came through, and he was a strange man. He was tied up. He had a tie on. And he walked around and he said things to patients like, how are you? You look much better. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. Give me a hug. You keep coming back. You keep coming back. Ho, ho, ho. Did you, did you read those pamphlets I brought you? Did you read the pamphlets? I'm watching this guy. What the hell is he? He's going through here. He comes up to me, you know. And these, you know, these AA people, if you're not familiar with, they're very, very intimidating when they come up and say, how are you? Oh, let, let, oh, you know, wait a minute, who are you? And he came up like that to me. And he talked to me and he said, uh, my name is Walter and I'm an alcoholic. I said, well, I, I don't want to know your personal business. That's a rather strange way to come up to somebody and say, hello, I'm Walter, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I thought that was a very strange comment for him to make, but he did say that to me and I said, oh. And uh, he said, uh, you see, I, uh, I said, do you work here? And he said, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, in the daytime, I take care of all the plumbing and I keep the heating going. Uh, I'm the plumber for this hospital. And I said, so what are you doing up here? He said, well, you see, in the daytime, I'm a plumber uh, for this hospital. But in the evening, I come here three evenings a week. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor tells me I must go and talk to patients because it helps me to get well. So may I talk with you? And I said, well, if it helps you to get well, Walter, go ahead and talk. (laughs) So Walter talked and he talked and talked and I listened and so forth. And that's interesting. And I thought, what a wild life he's had, you know, never thinking that very much. I was not listening for the things that were alike, but I was listening for how different he was from me. It was very much a threat for me when he was openly saying that he was an alcoholic. Because I thought to be an alcoholic was the destruction of your career I thought it to be a moral difficulty. I thought it all those things that I had been taught or thought. I did never knew it as an illness. Anyhow, he said, I'd like to take you on a, uh, on a trip. I've got a van and we're going to go to Oak Street. 
And I said, Oak Street? He said, yes, it's a wonderful old home. And I thought, oh, God, it's another mental institution. He said, no. And he said, it's, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think you will like it. And so I thought, well, to get out of here, sure, I'll go on a pass anywhere. And on a pass, he took three of us there and sat us in the front row. And when I went to Alcoholics Anonymous that night, I fell in love with it right away. I fell in love with Oak Street, really, because it had that big chandelier, and I thought it was like the ocean liner. And everybody was shaking hands. It was like a bon voyage party. Everybody was shaking hands. Everybody was hugging. And I thought, this is just like those wonderful parties on the steamboat. There's wonderful parties on the ocean liner. Everybody's, why don't they throw confetti? Anyhow, and there I am shaking hands with everybody. And here is my, my little bracelet, you know, Emerson North 3D. <laughs> shake it in the wind. And there I am. And I was there. Now, the right, being at the right place at the right time. Ooh, out of nowhere, what does God do? Jerry Stickley walks forward and says, where do you work? And uh, Well, I, I work across the street from there, from the Delta Square. Yeah, I'm over at the Bell Telephone. Where? Oh, are you? Well, good. We could probably have lunch someday. See? And then Bob Rich comes out of nowhere. And Bob Rich says, I'm over at P&G. And uh, we have noon meetings over at Xavier, but we meet at the Round Table, which is a restaurant downtown. And we have lunch there every day. A whole bunch of us. Well, this is sort of like a little society of its own. I didn't know that. And here they were talking to me like that. Oh, I know Jack Simpson. Oh, I know Betty very well. Oh, Betty was your boss. Uh, they knew all this stuff. And so it was very interesting. It was a little small world that I had been invo- involved in but didn't know I was involved in until, until now. And so there I am. I, uh, that was the story and that was my transition to that. So when I got out of the program, this fellow, Walter... And I mention him tonight in particular because I know Harry knew him and Doon knew him and a lot of them. He passed away two weeks ago. He was one of those unsung heroes in AA. He didn't get up and speak at gala events like this or at conventions, but he was forever in and out of talking with people at the workhouse, helping them to get the program and being there to meet them when they got out of the workhouse to take him right to Oak Street. He was one of those behind-the-scenes type of people. And he died uh, two weeks ago. He was 82 years old. He had 34 years in the program, and he uh, died of Alzheimer's. The last uh, three years of his life, he didn't really know any of us at all. But several of us went up to visit Walter, and uh, he called us any name that came to his mind, and we said, that's right, that's who I am. I'm glad you guessed. <laughs> Last time I was up there, I was a Steve, you know. It was good seeing you again, Steve. And I said, I'm so glad you remember my name, Walt. And uh, then he said, Walt who? So then I knew he was really quite ill. Then. So anyhow, he's gone. But uh, that's what, But he introduced me to it, and then it was other people that picked it up from there. And uh, by going to these roundtable luncheons every day, I would just sit and listen to these people. They were real smart. They draw graphs on a on a thing. You see, you come in, then you hit your bottom, and then you start going up like this, and and all this, and they write out things like "I'd rather be happy than be right." And then there were these marvelous, marvelous gurus that were sitting there. I thought they were such gurus. There were people that had 20 years or something in a program. There was this old man. His name was Al Calipi, and Al Calipi had a voice like this, a whiskey voice. And he'd been in the program forever, I thought. And he got up, and I'll never forget him saying this. He said this at a beginner's class. 
You people that want to get over your alcohol problem, you will be able to get over it tonight. Tonight. One dose here, you got it made. I will tell you what it is. If you listen carefully, you will hear the whole program of recovery given to you this very night. First, the chairman will get up, call the order, and say, let's say the Lord's Prayer, which, which tell us to say the serenity prayer, which says, start accepting that which you cannot change, start changing that which you can, which is only yourself, and get the goddamn wisdom, start doing it as soon as possible. Then the, then the chairman gets up and says, George will come up and read the uh, how it works. And somebody spells out, ready, did anybody fail, let it up. And somebody else reads one, two, three, two, twelve steps. And then they sit down. And somebody else gets up and says, is anything going on in town that we should know about? Any announcements? Meaning our own little society world. Hey, hey, our fellowship. Is there anybody here who's celebrating some kind of an anniversary of AA? And those people who have attained sobriety stand up proudly and get a coin, showing the others following behind them that it works. And that happens. Then after that, they invite somebody up, and somebody gets up and tells the story of their life to what happened, what, what it's like now, how they got here, and how their life's changed. Now, all you follow all that. Then after you follow that, then they close the meeting. They all hold hands. And they say the Lord's Prayer, which is really the 12 steps written up into a biblical form. They say that. They drop their hands. They start chatting with each other. They hug each other. They have another cup of coffee, another couple of cigarettes, and they go out in the parking lot and they talk some more. And they may see each other the next day for doing something else. And they start fixing each other's cars and playing golf with each other and visiting each other's houses. And if you can learn all that tonight, you got it made. I will tell you from my own personal experience. I learned all that the first night. But I had to come here 32 years to figure out what the hell it was I learned the first night. <laughs> I've been coming ever since to find out what the hell they did that first night. And that is so true. And it was Francis McCarthy who was wondrous. And I'll never forget him one time when he heard somebody get up and do a glorious lead. And this man had about six months in the program. And by the grace of God and you wondrous people and my life is changed. And oh, it went on and on. He was just marvelous. He was so spiritual and so ethereal. And so Francis McCarthy, who had 25 years or something, listened to that and said, wonderful. A young man, I, he says things that I didn't know until I'd been around here 15 years. He really is very, very astute, isn't he? Well, let's see if he knows how to practice these principles and all his affairs. So he went out and he looked into the man, talked to the man. He looked in his car and said, what are you doing with all those empty Coke bottles all over the back seat there? And your ashtrays overflowing. If you got it all together, why don't you start here? And that's very true that if we are getting it together emotionally, spiritually, we then start getting it together physically. And for those people on the outside that never know whether we have changed or not, we can never explain to them how we've changed inside because they can't see inside of us. But they can see the outside. And little things, if you want to get a wife back, like we had a discussion at the Promises Club the other day. A fellow said his wife left him. And how will I get her back? 
and I went to visit him that afternoon, and I went into his dining room, and he had an automobile engine in the middle of the dining room table. <laughs> and he was telling me about this wife that left him, and I couldn't take my eyes off the engine. And he asked my advice, and I said, get the engine out of the dining room. That'll help. <laughs> Jerry's over here. He knows what I'm talking about. He's little David. Get that engine out of the dining room. Well, he called me today. He said he got the engine out of the dining room. It's in the garage. And he's cleaned the uh, dining room table off and everything. She had left him. She'd gone to her mother's. She came over to visit him to bring the son over so he could have a visitation. And lo and behold, she came in and said, Why, look at the dining room table. It looks like it did when we got married. Say, <laughs> so he didn't know that if you just change a few little things so that people can see it. Well, I just want to conclude with something else that I think is marvelous. And was Francis McCarthy who taught me the expression, I'd rather be happy than be right. Because my life prior to that was always, I had to be right above all but one other thing is that Bob Rich pointed out to me too that Bill Wilson wrote some great things for the grapevine long after the big book wonderful wise things one of his things was we are the either or people looking for the middle of the road we're either mad or we're unconcerned we either think this is the greatest principle in the world of the hell with that we're either mad with you or we're enjoyed with you we either love you or we hate you. We're either ors. And those earth people who were in the middle that we often thought were so dull, they were right in the middle. And that's what we're trying to get. That's what AA is trying to do, teach us to get just down the middle, not to be extreme one way or the other. And finally, the other thing that he pointed out to me in one of Bill Wilson's readings was that one of the newcomers asked him, Bill, your book is very explicit on what happened to us and how, uh, how we are to get well by following the 12 steps, the suggested 12 steps. And if all that's in your big book, you don't tell us how do we then know when we are well. How do we know when we are well if we followed everything you told us? He said, you will know that for no one gets completely 100% well because if they do that's not even human and that's not what we want but you yourself will know when you are well when you feel needed when you feel wanted when you feel loved oh and the hardest one of all to get and when you feel respected then you know you've arrived there'll always be people who need you There'll always be people who want you. There'll always be people who love you. Your mother will always love you. But how many people respect you? And you count by the respect you get, honest respect, and that tells you how far I have gone. Thank you for listening to me. Good night.